Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20, with Pastor John King. Morning, everybody. Thank you again for coming out to service and being a part of the fellowship. It's important. You know, just uh, again, we miss you when you're not here. You may think, well, what do I do? And I, I would just say your presence is super important for each and every one of us. So uh, thank you folks for coming out today. And uh, so today we're going to cover uh, 20 verses from Daniel chapter 11. The first 20 verses from Daniel chapter 11. Um, as you're turning there, uh, let's uh, kind of review a little bit from last week. First of all, we need to keep in mind we're at the end of the book. We're at the end of the, of the book of Daniel. And you really kind of need to keep 10, 11, and 12 together because it's one long, uh, basically one long message from heaven through the angel Gabriel. Now, last week we were given a very rare glimpse of what it looks like, what takes place in the spiritual realm. Remember we said, you know, oftentimes our world and even we, we get caught up in the flesh and the things we can see, the natural and, and the scientific but there's a whole other realm of a spiritual world that's just as real as the world you and I sit in right now. And so we got to see behind the scenes as the angels of heaven were doing battle against the forces of darkness. You know, the enemy knows, the Satan knows that God has a plan for the nation Israel. And you're going to kind of see that as we go through uh, ancient history today. God has a plan for Israel but the enemy will always try to thwart or stop his work from being done. And he knows that the nation Israel, which will be returning from exile and will be reestablished, they're the ones who will bring forth the Messiah. The enemy knows this, and he always does his work to try and stop it. And we see this in the whole, uh, this section of Daniel especially. And he will try to use the governments of the world that, which are already under his control, and he will use that as a tool or a weapon to, uh, to come against God's plans. But we saw, once again, Daniel was a man committed to some very important things, some things we've been talking about here. He was, he was willing to do his part in the battle. And that was, what is his part? That was of prayer and submission to God's will. That's exactly what God has called us to do. Submission to God's will for his life and interceding in prayer. The same calling that you and I have. And so we've, we've been talking about this men's prayer, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Not, not for the hype, okay? Not for the, you know, the surface thing. I'm excited for the spiritual things that'll take place because we're going to gather in prayer. And so, man, I would challenge you, if you're planning on coming out Tuesday, maybe, well, maybe you're not planning on coming on Tuesday. Maybe you have other plans. And if you can make arrangements to be here on Tuesday night, I want to challenge you just a little bit further. Maybe you will fast during the day, fast on Tuesday, fast from, you know, whatever it is, you know, fast from food or whatever God would have you so you can concentrate and you can kind of get a little taste of what it's like to do spiritual battle before you join with the other men on Tuesday night. So I just want to uh, challenge you guys, consider fasting that day as we get ready to do battle on Tuesday night. Now this week, the angel Gabriel gives Daniel a very detailed vision of the future, and he's going to really concentrate us on two of the four kingdoms that came out of the Greek empire. 
after the sudden death of Alexander the Great. Now, we, we're going to kind of be looking back a little deeper in this chapter what was mentioned in chapter 8, the, 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 the story of Alexander the Great. And it's a clear example of God's sovereign plan to carry out his supreme agenda over the nation Israel. Again, this is not about the church. This is about the nation Israel. And, you know, he's going to concentrate on those two eastern kingdoms, or western kingdoms, if you will, of, of the four parts that are north and south of the Holy Land. Because through uh, several centuries, for several decades, there'll be a constant battle over the Holy Land. Uh, I'm not going to read the, the passage today. I'm just going to ask that we go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll just dive right into it. So, Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you've brought us to this place. We thank you, Lord, that we can overhear the words from the messenger Gabriel to Daniel that took place over 2,500 years ago. We can sit in this room and we can revisit, Lord, the great work that you did in setting the stage for the world kingdoms to come and continuing to this day, setting the stage for the future kingdom to come. And so, Lord, we ask that only by your grace and only by your love and mercy that it would change our hearts, that it would, it would transform us. Our information, we pray, would be used to bring glory to you. So we thank you for your word. We ask that you go before us, and we pray this now in Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So we start out in verses 1 through 4, and we kind of uh, sort of a recap from uh, the Greek empire. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. It says, also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Who's talking? This is not Daniel. This is a continuation of chapter 10. This is the angel Gabriel. And he, say, he states, he says, and after the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, this is going to be the final mention of Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel. And this refers back to 538, 39 B.C. So if you've been taking notes, that was the time. And that was the conquest of Babylon. And even though Darius is referred to as the king, we've learned so far that the, the true king behind all the power in Persia at that time was Cyrus, the great Cyrus the king. In fact, this was the same year, kind of a review, that Cyrus made the decree that gave the Jewish exiles the right to return to rebuild their temple. He gave them the, they didn't quite leave yet, but he decreed that they had the right to go back to their land and rebuild their temple. It was also the year, as you recall, that Daniel discovered the prophetic scriptures detailing this whole 70 years of captivity. Remember, he opened the scriptures and he read the prophets and he's like, wait a minute, whoa, this is getting ready to end. I need to pray. I need to go before the Lord. Because the people uh, of the exile were not seeking the Lord. They were seeking revenge against their Babylonian captors if they were praying to God at all. And this amazing prayer was resulted in a very quick response, the kind of thing we like to have, okay, when we pray to the Lord, a quick response from him, a quick confirmation. And we re you remember in Daniel 9, 23, uh, the angel told him, he says, Daniel, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. The command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. So again, he started praying, this angel comes back and goes, hey, 
You know, Daniel, when you started praying, the command from God went out. And I'm here to tell you what to, how to interpret this vision. But, you know, back to our text for today, verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, I, Gabriel, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Remember last week, the two angels, Gabriel and Michael, the archangel, the angel of Israel, were doing battle in the spiritual realm. In fact, they were detained by the prince of Persia for three weeks, the whole time that Daniel was praying and, and, and sort of a semi-fast, which gave us a look and it, it explained to us the need to persevere in prayer. You know, it took three weeks. This was going on in the spiritual realm behind the scenes. You and I have no idea what goes on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Keep praying. Keep praying for that prodigal. Keep praying for that health situation. Keep praying for that whatever the Lord has put on your heart that's in his will. Don't stop because you have no idea what's going on in the spiritual realm. Because remember, Satan seeks to kill and destroy and stop the work of God. And there's an actual battle that goes on over that. And that's what we've been exposed to. And so he says, and now I will tell you the truth. And he says, behold, verse 2, behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So now he says, I will tell you the truth. Now Gabriel brings a true and reliable message from heaven. Now look, folks, chapter 11, every pastor I heard preach on this message, every commentator I've heard and read of about this chapter will tell you it's one of the most difficult chapters to preach from because it doesn't really preach. It details history. And I don't know about you guys. I don't know what kind of history students you were. I would bet if I took a poll in here that half of you fell asleep during history class. <laughs> would I be right? No. no? Okay, you love history. Good, that's good. I like that. Because what we're going to do as we go through this, and, and I have to be careful because I can go on and on and on, and we don't want to do that. We're going to kind of go through and we're going to say, okay, here's what heaven said. Gabriel made this proclamation, and here's what history said the actual history of the world. And you can go and do your research like I have. There's a little bit of it. You can spend all your time, if you're a history buff, studying about the Ptolemy and the Seleucid Wars that took place. These are historical facts. And for some reason, God, and we're going to explain why, he wanted us to know this history. So remember, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it's profitable. All of it has a reason. But sometimes we pastors have a hard time saying that. We have a hard time explaining it. So I would ask that you be praying for me during this message, and I would appreciate that very much. He says, and now I will tell you truth. So the message is from heaven. This isn't Daniel making things up. This isn't some later writer after 168 BC. This is Daniel receiving a message from heaven, and he says, three more kings will arise in Persia. What's he talking about? You find them in Greek history, and you find them in the scriptures. The, the one name was uh, Cambyses. He was the son of King Cyrus. Then you had this man named uh, Pseudo-Smyrtus, very short-lived. Then you have another Darius. So you have these three kings who indeed rose up in history after. And this is, we're talking about the end of the Medo-Persian regime, if you will. But notice he says, but the fourth shall be far richer than them all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up, stir up all against the realm of Greece. What's going on? We're at, the, we're at the, 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 the end of the Persian Empire, and this new king, this powerful king, 
Uh, Xerxes, Persian king Xerxes, you can find him on the internet, historical figure, sometimes referred to as Ahushuris in the Bible, in the book of Esther. He goes up and for a long time, him and his successors kind of keep stirring things up in Greece and stirring the pot, if you will, and attacking one another. Because the Persian, that was the, that was the great second kingdom of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, was the Medo-Persian Empire. And this king Xerxes would reign from 486 to 465 BC. By his strength, through his riches, he shall, he shall stir up. So him and his predecessors are going to go up to Greece, and for about 150 years, I think I might have already said that, they're going to poke at Greece. And look at verse 3. Because they do that, a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according, of his, according to his will. In 336 BC, one of the greatest military conquerors in all of history would emerge. He was the 19-year-old son of Philip of Macedon. He was from the northern part of Greece, known as Macedon. He was a Macedonian. He was heir to the Macedonian throne, and his name was Alexander the Great. He was trained from a young age by his father and by other Macedonian leaders, most notably the Greek philosopher Aristotle. He trained young Alexander. His father was assassinated at a wedding for his daughter by his personal bodyguard. You know, see, the, the evil patent place of lives and people has been the same ever since the fall. And this left Alexander as the hegemon. You've heard this word hegemonic lately, haven't you? Hegemony. It's kind of popular today in the social and cultural upheaval we're going through. What this means is supreme ruler. It's a Greek word. It means supreme ruler. Excuse me. Now, we can see what we need to know about the Greek Empire. So now the, this Persian Empire is coming to an end. The Greek Empire is emerging, but they had a, a pattern of conquest that was a lot different than previous empires. They used three distinct phases when they would conquer a people group, okay? First is they would try to negotiate. Secondly, they would then dominate. And third, if they couldn't do that, or after they negotiate, dominate, then they would consolidate. In other words, you're being taken over. <laughs> you're being invaded. But as one ancient historian said, Alexander the Great did it many ways. He didn't just go in and bludgeon them. He did it many ways. Some, he won by persuasion and diplomacy. Others, he frightened into keeping the peace. But some had to be mastered by force and so reduced to submission. And that's how it was in that world, you know, when the great guy, conqueror came uh, and, and he had the powerful army and he could go against and he can defeat your armies, you will submit to his will. They didn't have a constitution of we the people, for the people, and by the people. That didn't exist. And you will do according to his will. This refers to Alexander the Great's unstoppable power. Now remember, in, here we are in the book of Daniel, remember Nebuchadnezzar's uh, great dream image? This was the third great Gentile kingdom with the belly and the thighs of bronze. You saw that in chapter 2. You saw it again, the third beast of Daniel's vision in chapter 7, described as a leopard with four wings, and the four wings are describing the four 
groups that broke off after Alexander died. And then finally, we see in chapter 8, he is the he-goat with the notable horn between his eyes. So you have all of this imagery, which was explained earlier, to actually be this great king, uh, Alexander the Great. And so in verse 4, it says, And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander was also very famous for his rapid demise. Within 10 years, he had conquered most of the central countries from Egypt all the way through the former Persian Empire and as far east as India. His military tactics and political savvy along with strong cultural influence. Now, you know, you talk about a cultural revolution. There are many that have happened in our history, in our lifetime. We have cultural um, you know, conflict going on in our nation right now, the, the war of the cultures. But he had a thing that was known, you might have heard it's called Hellenization. You know, Helen who? Hellenization. This is when they would go in and they would change your official language, your native language to their language, to, to Greek. They would hire up the local mercenaries as soldiers and join the military, right? They would get the cooperative politicians to be their administrators. And so not only would he win militarily, but he would win culturally. And they would spread this culture all around the known world at the time. Now his advance through India was stopped not by his enemies, because he still had this mighty, I mean, despite the fact that the enemies that were fighting him in India, kind of interesting, you know, there were pythons and there were elephants and there were, you know, uh, poison darts and all kinds of crazy stuff. But he was stopped because his loyal Macedonian soldiers were sick and tired of it. They were tired of following this guy's ego for the last 10 years to conquer the world. And so they told, basically told Alexander, we aren't going any further because he could have continued. And so he kind of had to put his tail between his legs and he found his way back to Babylon and proceeded to drink himself to death. He died at the age of 33 in 323 BC. And so Gabriel's predicting this is what's going to happen. And indeed, that exactly is what happened. It says, this king, but not among his past posterity, posterity, excuse me, not according to his dominion with which he ruled. When Alexander the Great died, all of a sudden, his family heirs, a few of them received, you know, leadership, but they were quickly taken out of the picture. So he didn't, he wasn't able to pass his, his throne on to his family, so to speak. And what happened, it says, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. The four generals, who were some of his senior generals from his massive army that he had, would now take over the kingdom. You see, when somebody big and strong that's running a movement or you know, maybe has a big following, when they're taken out, things can be you know, a little crazy afterwards. Like, who's going to take that guy's place? You know, we saw it in our own movement with Calvary Chapel with Pastor Chuck. Finally, he died in 2013, and there was a, you know, a council that was assigned, and we've had little problems since then, you know, keeping the movement unified. And so this happens all throughout history when one strong leader, especially one who leaves very quick, quick and rapidly. But remember, God's in charge of all this. He's the one that raises up these kings, these mighty men, and he's the one that takes them down. And that's exactly what he did. 
So these senior generals from, Alexa uh, from uh, Alexander's senior generals was divided into four regions, remember? You had Greece and Macedonia. This was controlled by a guy named Antipater and Cassander. You had Tharse in Asia Minor, which is up north near the Caspian Sea. They were controlled by a guy named Lysimachus. But we're going to talk about the two other, like I said, the other portions of that kingdom that were divided into four, and that is the northern kingdom, which is Syria, Babylon, and much of the Middle East. That was originally controlled by a guy named Seleucus. And then Egypt and Palestine were controlled by a guy named Ptolemy, Ptolemy I. And so they're the two that border the Holy Land. Remember, God is bringing his people back. And so by the time these, a lot of these things happen, the Jews have been turned from exile, and now there's a continuous battle over the Holy Land, just like you have today. And up until 1948, and you still got all these nations around the nation Israel who would like to see them removed. <clears throat> Some thoughts? Now this, this chapter in particular, I've got to explain this to you, has been attacked by secular historians and sort of progressive liberal type Christian scholars known as higher critics. Why? Well, because the detail is too much for them to handle. The fact that all this stuff is going to be laid out with such precision has a doubter, has a secular historian, has a progressive scholar saying, no way. No way did Daniel write these things. No way did Daniel receive this from Gabriel because he would have had to wait for all this detail that we're about to go through. He would have had to wait for it to happen so he could write it after the fact. You guys need to know that. So when some smarty pants comes up and says, well, you know, the book of Daniel, blah, 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 blah. Especially if you, they find out that you have an interest in prophecy. The problem with this, folks, is pretty obvious, but let me just say this requires those critics and anybody that chooses to go that route to deny supernatural revelation and in fact call Daniel a fraud. You know, why did we waste the last 10 weeks studying Daniel if it was all a big written by somebody else after the fact? That's not what I believe. But some people could certainly try to make a case for that. Now, when we read through this, you'll see that Everything this angel Gabriel says about what's going to happen, he says it shall happen. So it's in the future. And if you're not careful, you know, that's part of the battle that we're in with Scripture is that higher critics and liberal theologians and atheists and such, they try to undermine your confidence in Scripture the divine revelation. And we need to come back to that and be reminded that we believe that the Bible makes no mistakes. It is inerrant. And it was breathed of God, and we have to be reminded of that. We have to be reminded of that. But really, what's the, why, you might want to ask yourself the question, why does God want his messenger Gabriel to re reveal so much about these Persian and Greek empires? Why does he want to tell us all this stuff? Why didn't you just save it for the secular history books? Well, David Guzik, I, I think he brings up two very good reasons. First of all, let's talk about the Persian Empire, the, the king of the north, if you will, is what we're going to see today. They tried to wipe out the Jewish people. And you see it during the reign of Xerxes, and if we were in the book of Esther, or if you've been to the play, 
And you see what happened. It was a miraculous move of God that prevented God's people from being killed wholesale by this crazy king. In the book of Esther, it's recorded. Well, okay, so, well, so God doesn't like that. God is going to protect his plan. He's going to keep his plan moving forward. And you're not going to wipe out my people. Okay, so the Persian king. The second is that the Greek empire tried to wipe out the Jewish people during the reign of somebody who we're going to meet next week, the famous Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a true historic figure. He attempted to kill every Jew who did not renounce their commitment to God and embrace Greek culture. Those are historical facts. And the reason why God wanted us to know this future history is because you and I need to see, by looking back, we need to realize that they would not prevail, that they would not prevail against God's people nor God's plan. We know in recent history that Hitler himself and his, you know, his great solution and Himmler and all those sick Nazi idealists tried to wipe out the Jewish people. And right after World War II in 1948, the nation Israel stood up as a sovereign nation. How does that happen? Because God will protect his people. And he has a plan for the nation Israel. We cannot forget that. We also see it in Genesis. Right from the beginning, Genesis 12.3, God's promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because the Messiah is coming from this land. <coughs> but the enemy does not like that idea at all. Also, we need to remember this. We've said it before. These great you know, dynasties, if you will, these great kingdoms, Alexander the Great and later the Fourth Kingdom, Roman Kingdom, they spread far and wide beyond and past their own lives. With Alexander, the Greek language was spread all over. His culture, of course, had a negative effect on the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were losing their religion. They were losing their Hebrew language. But what it did, and it prevented them from reading the scriptures in their native tongue, which is very important to them, which is why we support Bible translators who print Bibles in people's native languages, because it's so important. But for the early church, this common language was a blessing. This common Greek language would be written, the Bible itself would be written in common Greek, Koine Greek, and it would spread throughout the entire Mediterranean and the Middle East. So everybody could be on the same page because you had literally hundreds and thousands of people, because the earth's population wasn't that big then, you had many, many people who could read God's word, the Gentiles. And so, God uses that. He used the Roman road systems for Paul's journeys, okay, and the ships and all the things that God allowed these societies to build. He used it for his purposes and his glory. Oh, we're only up to chapter, or verse 5, sorry. <laughs> verse 5, it says, now, here, here's, okay, this is a message from heaven. And Gabriel says, also, the king of the south shall become strong as well of one as, as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. History tells us that that was Ptolemy I. He was one of Alexander's four generals who gained control of Egypt. One of his princes was this guy Seleucius. 
He was forced out of control over Babylon. He became an ally of Ptolemy. And then he was able to get his power back. And then it says, his dominion shall be a great dominion. Eventually, this Seleucus kingdom would grow stronger than this Egyptian kingdom. Verse 6, the message... Well, let's just stop here for a minute. For 130 some odd years, okay, these Ptolemies and these Seleucids are going to do battle. They're going to be fighting one another. They're going to be giving their women up for marriage, trying to do it that way. You know, kind of a, an ancient Hatfields and McCoys. But it lasts a lot longer than the Hatfields and McCoys feud. In fact, we saw, um, it says they'll join forces. Verse 6, and I'm going to be summarizing a lot now, and you're going to say thank you for that. I'm going to be summarizing a lot now and kind of taking a high pass because we simply do not have the time. It says, notice here, at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. This, this uh, daughter of the king of the south, was, her name was Bernice. It was Ptolemy's granddaughter. And um, the king of the north was now the second generation, Antiochus II, or the third ruler. And they decided to make an agreement. They would go ahead and the two enemies would merge through marriage. You know, hey, if I marry off my granddaughter, then he won't attack me. Okay, that was the thought. But it didn't really work out that way. Uh, marriage between allies and even peaceful enemies were used to maintain peace. Look, if you look at history, you know that that hardly ever worked out right. And you can look at it all the way through. Those of you who are history buffs. And in fact, this lady, Bernice, she didn't even get to retain power why? Well, because this guy, Antiochus, who had left his wife, now he had a second thought, and he wanted to come back to his wife. And so he had a change of heart, and he reconciled with his wife, Laodice, and she took vengeance out on Bernice and killed her and her sons, and she also had her husband killed as well by poisoning him. So, you know, it doesn't work out in the end. Things are, things are not good. So if you're thinking about trading in your spouse for another, for an upgrade, uh, let, me try, let me tell you that history tells us over and over again that it rarely ever works out right. And it's against God's will. But this was the life they were living. Verses 7, it says, from message from heaven, but a branch from her. Uh, this was Bernice's roots shall arise. Um, again, you had this rise, uh, this back and forth of exchanging of power, one over the other. And there were military battles that took place, and one would attack, and the other would counterattack. And so you saw that all through, and you see it in verse 8, and he shall also carry the gods captive to Egypt with their princes. Um, again, they were working a lot of schemes and a lot of deals behind the scenes. Verse 9, also the king of the north shall come into the to the kingdom of the king of the south, but re not, shall not return to his own land. This one particular leader decided he was going to invade Egypt, and he lost, you know, he, and so he was sent back, and that's what happened. He says he shall return to his own land. And when he returned home, he was killed when he fell off his horse, and then his son uh, took the throne, and he was later assassinated. So, you know, this was, this was like, you know, modern-day drama, happening. But when you come, when you look at these, you got to stop and say, okay, something's not right about man and history. When you look back at historical facts about how governments go in the world, you should be able to come to the conclusion to say this, man 
can't govern himself. Even the best of situations cannot govern himself. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, man apart from God has not been successful at governing people and stewarding resources. Just look back at history. Now Isaiah 26 speaks of the Lord's second coming and his establishment of his righteous kingdom. We, we read that this morning, Isaiah 26, 9. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So you and I have a hope that the world is grasping for whether they know it or not. Because if you ask most people, they would like to have peace and security and they would just like to raise their families and live life healthy and happy until the end of their days. The problem is government won't allow that. Governments don't allow that to happen. And so because there's injustice, because there's greed, because there's a lack of you know, control over the freedom you might have, governments don't allow that. And so you say, well, what's the solution, John? Well, the solution is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God is coming back to rule and reign over this. And, and so, you, you know, again, we want to be a part of God's plan. So here we, we're going to go real quickly through verses 10 through 13. Again, you had Old World Hatfields and McCoys. Now let me ask you a trivia question. How long was the Hatfield-McCoy feud? I'll give you a hint. It was from 1863 to 1891. It lasted 28 years. How long was the war between the kings of Egypt and Syria? I, we said it earlier, if you were paying attention. It was 130 years. So they really had a thing going on, these warring kings. And so in verse 10, it says, however, again, we're talking a message from heaven. This is very specific from Gabriel. However, his son shall stir up strife, assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. This was recorded history between Seleucus and Antiochus III. Both of them were the third. So again, you're going through decades and generations. But notice that they're now they're passing through. What are they passing through? The Holy Land. That's why God's so intent on knowing about these wars and telling you about them. Because they're trampling on his property. The nation Israel. And so, verses 11 through 12, again, you have back and forth, back and forth. They lose the Holy Land, they gain the Holy Land. Now this is just going to be a seesaw battle as you read through these things where one's going to gain possession of the Holy Land, one's going to lose possession. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, even after, way after, through the Crusades and everything, all the way up until 1948, it was a constant battle over the nation Israel and the Holy Land. Now we come to the end of our segment for today, verses 14 through 20. We're going to see now the end of a dynasty and yet the beginning of another. Verse 14, it says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, a violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of division, but they shall fail. What's happening here is now because Israel is now the battleground between these two northern and southern kingdoms, uh, the Jews uh, at the time were being controlled by the Egyptians, which they resented. Why do you think the Jews would resent being controlled by the Egyptians? 
because they were delivered in Exodus from slavery from Pharaoh. So it would be a, 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 you know, a very resentful thing for them to have control over them. So they decided to you know, kind of cast their lots and kind of go with this northern king. And they failed. It says they shall fail. The southern king took over. He fought the battles and they couldn't, you know, the person that they sided with uh, got beaten. But eventually they would be back under the control of the king of the north. You see this in 15 and 16. And so right by verse 16, you see the final control over the Holy Land has been now taken from the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, and it's now totally controlled now by this northern king and for generation upon generation. It says, He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. This beautiful land, they're talking about Israel again, in verse 16. And he shall set his face to enter in the strength of his whole kingdom Upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give to him a daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him, nor be, for it, be with him. This Antiochus III, um, who's one generation or two generations away from the famous guy we're going to talk about next week, um, decides that um, he wants to expand his kingdom. So he wants to get power, they want more. They always want more power. But the problem is, He's going to start going. He, he settled the war with Egypt. They're no longer at war. Now he's going to start pushing back towards the north. But what he's going to run into in verse 18, after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. He's going up to the Greek Isles, but who's he running into at this point in history? He's starting to run into the emerging Roman Empire. Remember the fourth kingdom, the emerging Roman Empire. And, you know, they mentioned this, uh, it talks about here in verse 17, backing up a little bit, uh, Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra that you see in the movies. Her, uh, the Cleopatra, the one that most people are familiar with, would emerge about 100 years later. And so this, this Antiochus, uh, he will try to come against the people of Greece. He, come, he runs into the Roman Empire. The Romans are starting to gain strength. And so they force him to go back to, the, to his, his main area, which is the Holy Land, which is Syria. And they are going to force him to pay rent, and they're going to make him sort of a vassal of the Roman Empire. And that's where we will see next week. It says, there, verse 20, it says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. He's mad because he's being defeated by the Romans. He's being pushed back. Now he turns his vengeance on the nation Israel and then his, his son will be even worse. And we'll see that when we talk about Antiochus Epiphanes next week. So finally today, for today, again, uh, for those of you who tend to fall asleep during history class, let me challenge you. God wanted Daniel and all the succeeding generations to know the major events of world history. So he was taking the time to give some remarkable de details about his prophetic plan. The major historic events we see in the Bible after Genesis 11 involve the Jews, the nation Israel, and God's plan of redemption for the world. And it's good for us to have kind of a big picture about world history. 
Another thing we need to know is that God fulfills his holy word. Down through the centuries, God's given us prophecy after prophecy to help us and to warn us of coming events. Many of those prophecies have already come to pass, as we saw in this in these chapter. All that his, history that the angel said would happen, happened. But many lie out in the future, for even possibly for our generation to see. And they will be fulfilled unquestionably. Because God, you know, he doesn't give information to his angel to write in his holy book for it to be false. Again, we must fight against that. So what God has predicted will happen. Ezekiel 12.25 says this, For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. I will no more be postponed, for in your days, O rebellious house, and he's talking to the nation Israel, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. God keeps his word. Now, today, we know that the enemy is still clinging to the hope, the vain hope, that somehow he can stop God's plan from moving forward. You see it all the time. We're going to be out this weekend at the Potato Festival here in northeastern North Carolina, the Bible Belt. There'll be 30,000 people passing through over the course of the weekend. And we're going to bring the gospel. We're going to bring gospel tracts. Now, I don't think that the enemy doesn't like that. The men of this church, many are planning to gather on Tuesday night. Don't think that the enemy does not want that to happen. And so he will try to thwart. Now, today in our world, you know, you go back out and you see all this stuff on the internet. And if you've got the flat screen at home or the flat screen in your palm, you see all the stuff that's going on. And we notice that what the enemy does is he, he controls governments that either already reject God or he tries to make governments become ones who have rejected God. We're all part of this cultural upheaval, aren't we? And it's been stirring particularly hard for the last 50 or 60 years. We see firsthand the crumbling of our nation, which was based on Judeo-Christian values, the thing that the enemy hates. And for many reasons, this crumbling is happening. But one of them is clear is the lack of our discipline in a free country to control ourselves, to control our appetites, to control our spending habits, to control our, uh, what become addictions. And so what we have on the rise, and we see more and more of it, and you see it, you'll see it continually, is um, a, somebody's trying to fill the vacuum. Because many people are saying, I don't see any hope for this nation whatsoever, whatsoever. And so there's people who are trying to fill the vacuum. They're trying to bring a counterfeit philosophy that speaks about social justice and equity and environmental concerns while at the same time wanting abortion on demand and the freedom of all cultural restrictions. 
Just get them out. You know, just burn it down. We want all cultural restrictions removed. Especially those found in the Bible. What they perceive as a restriction. And so you and I need to be in prayer. We need to join together. We need to stay the course and do what God's called us to do. We are confident that our Lord is coming back and he will set everything in order. And our calling, men and women, brothers and sisters, is clear. Serve him, grow in his grace, humble our hearts before him with repentance and prayer and seek to obey his will every single day. That's what we're called to do. Not to stress out. Not to, you know, uh, do things that he would not call us to do, whatever that may be. You have to sit before the Lord. Luke 21, 28 says, talking, Jesus was talking about the last days. And he said to his disciples, he says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. We always have the hope of God's plan coming ahead of us. So as we get ready, we're going to go ahead now and uh, let's close in prayer and we'll go ahead and start our communion uh, service. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer, bring the lights down. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the history of the world. You know, you have the world and the, and the history in your hands and you knew exactly what was going to take place, exactly when it would happen. And Lord, we've seen a glimpse of that today through all these details. And we trust and believe that these are words from you meant for us even today to understand and to realize that you were sovereign over all the nations. You were sovereign over this world. You created it. And you will return one day to set up your kingdom. And you will rebuild it one day. You will destroy all that we see. And you will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. All according to your scriptures. So Lord, let us be diligent to follow you, to obey you, and to walk in your grace, to walk humbly, and to live lives that bring glory to you each and every day as you empower us. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.